Lord, we thank you that you are such a great and a wonderful God to every single one of us. You are altogether lovely, altogether worthy. We just praise and worship your name. As we go to your word right now, we pray, Lord, that you would be our teacher. Lord, not the words of men, but the word of God. And Lord, I pray you'd give us, again, just soft hearts to receive whatever you would have for us tonight. Whether it be encouragement, exhortation, even rebuke if necessary, Lord, whatever it takes to get us back to where we need to be with you, to get our eyes focused on you, to make you the passion of our lives above all else. Lord, may you be our teacher. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. If you have your Bibles, turn to Joshua chapter 5, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. I'm going to move my water a little bit away from me, for those of you here last Wednesday. If you weren't here last Wednesday, you got no idea what I was talking about. For the first time I can remember, I knocked all my water on myself last week, so if you weren't here. Before we get started, I did want to talk about one other thing. Last Sunday, I made a statement about the Roman Catholic Church having come out against, or making a statement about the fact they didn't, no longer believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. I want to clarify something that the source that we have was someone in the body had heard it on the radio by a bishop on KGO, and we were unable to find any archives for that or any documentation on that. So what we did do is spend some time trying to find out if there are any new positions. And the only thing we really found, nothing from the Vatican itself, but something published by the Catholic Liturgical Office of England that was called the, it's called the Gift of Scripture, And it's something to help Catholics have a better understanding about the Word of God. Now, to make it really clear again, because I never, if I'm going to, if I say something and it's incorrect, I want to make sure I tell you, okay? Because I don't want to be incorrect. If I say something wrong, I want you to correct me, all right? Nowhere does the Word actually say that they specifically no longer believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. But, there are several quotes from this teaching that seem to indicate they're moving away from inerrancy and... They dismiss parts of the Bible as inaccurate and non-historic. So if you start to say the Bible is inaccurate, or you say it's not historically accurate, well then you're saying that, in my opinion, you're saying it's not inerrant, right? Because inerrant would be without error. Now, I want to make it really clear. My heart is not to go after any, quote, religious group. That's not my heart. My heart is to see everyone saved. Amen? Everyone saved. And when I share stuff with it, like this with you guys, it's so that when you share with your friends who maybe are of that background or another background, that you understand what they are being taught. So you know better how to encourage them from the Word of God. And so my heart as your pastor is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to always speak the truth, to not water it down, but to always do it in love. And again, if you ever catch me doing it and you think it's not coming across in love, call me on it. That's why I'm here. And I want to be the first one to say that the statement I made, at least the documentation we could find, when I said it came from the Vatican, that's inaccurate. And I want to make it very clear to you guys that if I was wrong because I didn't have documentation. I only heard it from somebody who heard it off the radio. I'm not, and so I couldn't find any documentation, so I'm here to tell you I didn't find any. All right. Now here's my heart. My heart would be that there are more and more people within the Catholic Church who believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. And I hope that I find out that this is just a few people that don't believe it. That would certainly be my heart. And my heart is to see, again, as many people following the truth of God's Word. But at the same time, I want to be very clear also that if somebody comes out against the Word of God, no matter who it is, then they can no longer call themselves Christians. No matter who it is, okay? 
whatever group, that they start to say, well, the Bible this, we're saying that. And there are a lot of, quote, Christian churches in Santa Cruz County that do that. That say, well, the Bible, we don't take it literal. We don't really believe. Well, if you don't believe God's word, then what's the authority you base your life on? Amen? Praise God. This is the living, breathing word of God, and it is without error. Amen? It is. All right? Okay, that being said, let's move on to Joshua chapter 5. Continuing again our verse-by-verse study here of, of Joshua. Now, Joshua comes after the book of the law or the Septuagint, the first five books of the Bible. And in those five books of the Bible, written by Moses, again, we saw the sinfulness of man, him falling away from God, entering into bondage in Egypt, then being delivered out of that bondage in Egypt. And after being delivered out of bondage in Egypt, wandering in the wilderness because of their disobedience against God, then being encamped outside again and turning away because they were afraid of the giants in the land. And then Deuteronomy comes along, and Deuteronomy was the second giving of the law to educate that next generation because the entire generation that came out of Egypt died in the wilderness. All the adults, 20 years of age and older, died in the wilderness. So that means that those who were coming in Though they may have been small children when they went across the Red Sea, were not adults. So they need to be educated. So now they're coming into the land of promise. And typologically, as we've been talking about, Egypt is a picture, a type of the world, or sin. And being delivered out of that bondage at Passover, a picture of the cross, the blood of the Lamb and the shape of the cross. They escaped out again, were delivered out of bondage. Red Sea, a picture of water baptism. Sinai, the giving of the law, Mount Sinai, the giving of the law, giving of God's word, and then heading into the wilderness, and then into, again, toward the land of promise. The land of promise, a picture of the spirit-filled life. The Jordan River, crossing over that, I believe, a typology or a picture of water, of Holy Spirit baptism, excuse me. Red Sea water baptism, Jordan River, Holy Spirit baptism. So entering into all that God has for you. Now, as we got to Joshua, we see that its main theme is them possessing the land. Joshua now is 95 years old. He's leading the people in. Moses could not take them into the land because he had disobeyed God. In Joshua 1, the message was titled, Responding to God's Call. And it saw Joshua being faithful to respond to God's calling upon our life. And I exhorted you, I exhort me, that God has a calling for every one of our lives, and God desires that we respond in obedience. In Joshua chapter 2, we saw the story of Rahab, a woman who was a prostitute. And we talked, the title of the message there was from incredible sin to incredible faith. That a woman that was so far away from God became a woman used mightily by God. And that should be an encouragement to every one of us that God can use us. Amen? She took the scarlet cord and hung it out the window to show that she was aligned with the spies who had come in. Her window sill was painted red. You had a picture of the cross hanging out her window again many years before Jesus even came. When we get to chapter 3, we saw them stepping out in faith. Because what's happened? Now they've come to the Jordan River. They wait there for several days. During the time they're waiting at the Jordan River, they see that it's rushing by them. Now, the previous generation did not go into the land because they were afraid of the giants. This time there's a huge river in front of them. And the fear was, could have been again, man, God brought us all the way here. We're so close. And look at this obstacle in front of us. And we talked about the fact that God's desire is that we would learn to step out in faith. Faith is not seeing and then believing. It's believing and then seeing. And he told them, as soon as your feet get wet, the water will part. But not until. And sure enough, the priests put their feet into the water. They took the Ark of the Covenant, God going before them, out into the Jordan. And then everybody crossed through on dry land. 
Now last week, when we got to chapter 4, we saw passing that faith on to the next generation. If you'll remember, what they did is they told him, he told, pick one of each of the 12 tribes, and when you go through the water, you're to pick up, after they got to the other side, go back in and pick up a big stone, and then carry these huge stones eight miles to Gilgal, where they were going to settle, and they were to build an altar there, so that every time the next generation saw the altar, they'd say, why is that there? And they would say, God brought us across the Jordan River on dry ground when we put our feet into the water. And it was to point them back to the faithfulness of God. And we know that Joshua went a step further in that he built an altar in the center of the river. So it even could be that maybe it was sticking out of the top or when the waters went down, that people would see these rocks sticking up in the middle of the Jordan. And whenever they would ask, why are those there? They would be able to point people back to what God had done. We point out the fact that for you and I, that God's called us to have memorials, right? To make a memory for your children, as we talked about last week. To raise them up in the way they should go. To have things that remind your children of the Lord. You know, again, the illustration I use is imagine they put a 50-foot tall cross in the middle of the Capitola Mall. Be awesome. Amen? Can you imagine if every little kid who went by said, what's that? Instead of, what's that Christmas tree, right? What's that cross? And every time be an opportunity to point them to the Lord. Now we come to chapter 6. And now we're going to talk about the fruits of a spirit-filled walk. Now we're finally on the other side. Okay? We come to the other side. Entering into Canaan, the land of promise, the land flowing with milk and honey. Having crossed over the Jordan. Having, again, that picture of being baptized in the Spirit. Now, walking in the Spirit. Experiencing all that God has for you. And as we're going to see in these coming chapters, that an obedient walk doesn't mean that it will always be free of struggles, difficulty, and opposition. A lot of people preach that, don't they? Come to Christ, your life will be perfect. Here's the truth. The more on fire you are for God, the truth is, the more opposition you're going to face. It's a fact. But you'll have joy in the midst of it. Why? Because God is faithful, and if God is for us, who can be against us? And again, the enemy is going to go after those whose lights are shining brightest. In tonight's chapter, we're going to watch as God prepares the children of Israel for battle, because right in front of them, they're now encamped at Gilgal. One mile straight ahead of them, one and a quarter miles roughly, is Jericho, the biggest fortress that they're going to face in all of Canaan. They've just come over, their face is the greatest enemy right in front of them. But before they go into battle, there's a work that God has to do in their heart. And often, that's what God does with us. He prepares us before He sends us out into battle. You know, if you look at Jesus beginning His public ministry, He was baptized in the Jordan, the Holy Spirit came upon Him, and then He went out to do ministry. The same thing is happening here. That Spirit-filled life, they come to the other side of the Jordan, and again, we're going to see fruits of a Spirit-filled walk. He's going to prepare them. And there will be clear applications for you and I. Let me give you what I believe are the three main applications right off the bat. All right, Three main points. First of all, the first fruit of the Spirit we're going to see is a radical obedience. Now those two words shouldn't have to be in the same sentence, but they are. Here's why. We should always be obedient, amen? And that should be our heart. But we don't do it, amen? We fall short. But I, want, I, I just titled the term radical obedience, and here's what I mean by that. Obeying God, no matter what the circumstances. Obeying God, no matter what the consequences. Valuing spiritual obedience over physical comfort. The Bible says to obey is better than sacrifice. And that's a fruit, I believe, of the Spirit-filled life. You see people doing things that other people think you're out of your mind. Dude, you're out of your mind. You're doing what? 
God told me that's why I'm doing it. God's word says that's why I'm going to do it. And we live in a world today where we're more worried about being popular with men than faithful to God. So fruit of walking in the spirit, number one, is radical obedience. The second thing is remembering God's goodness, remembering his deliverance and, and his provision. We'll talk about both of those things. And then lastly, reaffirming intimacy with God. You know what? If you are walking in the spirit, you're going to have intimate fellowship with God. God is not far away. You're as close to God as you want to be. It's up to you. God desires to be very close to you. I'm not very close to God. Well, whose fault is that? Amen? Who moved? God didn't move. You did, right? If you're not as close to God as you used to be. So, those three things. Radical, obedience, remembering God's goodness, and reaffirming intimacy with the Lord. So let's begin in verse 1. Of fruits of a spirit-filled walk, a radical obedience. Look at verse 1. So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. Now the king of the Amorites, we've already seen some Amorites previously on the other side of the Jordan. And it was two kings by the name of Sihon and Og. Og was, in the Bible, probably the biggest man ever. He was buried in a sarcophagus that was 13 feet tall. So this guy was huge. And he had many armies under him. And guess what? The children of Israel wiped them out. And they wiped Sihon out. Now why did they have victory? Because they obeyed God. Where the previous generation said, Oh, these guys are giants in the land. We can't do it. Forget it, man. We're overwhelmed. They understood that if God is for us, who can be against us? And they marched against them and they wiped them out. Now, do you think the people of the same tribe who were on the other side of the Jordan might have heard about this? There's no doubt about it. Word came back, Sihon and August got smoked by the Israelites, right? They got wiped out. At the same time, we know from Rahab last week, or a few weeks ago, that she had told them, the, the spies, everybody here is fearful. Everybody here is falling apart. So we've got the word that has come back to them, and we see that, again, they're concerned about the children of Israel. Now the Canaanites who were by the sea, the Amorites would have been the guys living in the mountains, and the Canaanites who were by the sea, those who lived along the Mediterranean Sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters and, of the Jordan from the children of Israel until they crossed over. Now they may have thought that the, that the waters would hold them back for a while. And then the word comes to them that not only was God working with them 40 years ago when he parted the Red Sea, which Rahab said that they knew about, he's still working in that he parted the Jordan. And this word gets to the enemy, those in Jericho, and they find out, and how do you think they respond? The word comes to them and it says there that their hearts melted. Hearts melting under repentance is a good thing. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but sadly, these guys have a fear of God's people, not a fear of God. And sadly, because of it, they're petrified, again, that here comes the enemy, and what are we going to do And their God is greater than ours? You know what God does in, for, and through us will always be known to our enemy. That's an absolute fact. And the enemy knew that God was working. You know, I think it's interesting. I think that the, I, I truly believe this is, is an accurate statement for most of us. That Satan knows more about what God's doing in your life than you do almost. Because he sees a spiritual battle going on around you. And he knows how great your God is. 
And we ought to know how great our God is. Amen? And we ought to know. See, the enemy knew. The enemy knew what was happening with the children of Israel. And because they knew, their hearts melted. And you know what? I think the enemy's heart melts when he sees God using us in a mighty way. I think he's bummed out. Man, another one on fire for God. Man, I've got to do something to dial that guy down. And our actions will, again, either bring glory to the Lord or harm to his name. And when our spiritual enemies see it, they lose confidence. Now it says their heart melted. This is a fulfillment of God's promise. In Deuteronomy 11, he told this generation, No man should be able to stand up against you. The Lord your God will put dread of you and fear of you upon all the land where you tread, just as he said to you. And then Rahab said, I know that God has given you the land. The terror has fallen upon us. So the people already knew. And this is fulfillment of what God had already said would take place. And you would think, from a physical or military point of view, the word gets back to you that the enemy's petrified. They're shaking in their boots. What do you think they should do? What would you do if you were the commander? What would you do? Attack! Guys, they're petrified. Get them, right? Guys, scared, all of a sudden you've got confidence. Now, you've already walked through the sea on dry, you know, the, the river on dry land. You've seen God work. He's been dropping manna on you for 40 years, Okay? And you know that God is with you, and you've seen God be faithful, and you hear the enemy is petrified, and you would think, this is a time to go after them. But remember this, God's ways are not always our ways. God does things His way. We must learn to trust God even when it doesn't make sense to us. So what does He tell Joshua? Now Joshua, mount up the army and go down and get them. No, it's not what He says. Look what it says here. Says there's no spirit any longer because the children of Israel, the people are petrified. And at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. Now, how would you like to get those orders from the commander? The commander comes out and does, and they're like, They're petrified. This is sweet. We're in the land flowing of milk and honey. We've been waiting 40 years to get there. I hear they're scared to death of us. God's on our side. Let's go tear them up. And instead, he says, I want you to make some knives, start cutting. Make flint knives. Now, these flint, that means they're made out of sharp rocks. That's not good. Now, they're in the enemy territory, and Joshua shows up and says, Okay, guys, we're not going to attack. Here's what we're going to do. You guys are all getting circumcised. Now, but what about the enemy? They're scared to death. Why do we have to do this? Now, it says there, circumcise them a second time. Is this the same people being circumcised again? No. What this is, is that they had turned away from their covenant with the Lord, the previous generation. What was circumcision? It was a sign of the covenant promise between God and Abraham. Each man was marked privately. It was a daily reminder of his covenant relationship with God, that his body belonged to the Lord. He was not to use it for sinful purposes, that the Jews were a special people, a separated people, a holy nation. They were to maintain their purity in their marriages, in their marriages, in their society, and in their worship. But you know what? Since they left Egypt, they had not been circumcising their kids. They stopped honoring God and his covenant he had made with them. The same reason they ran away when they heard about the giants in the land. Their covenant with God had been broken. And he said, before you can go on and fight one battle, you need to get your covenant right with me. You need to reestablish that covenant with every single man who's here before you go out and fight the battle. Guys, before you go out and fight any spiritual battles, you need to make your covenant right with God. 
You need to get on a right page with the Lord and right standing with the Lord. Be seeking Him. People who come and they're just struggling in their walk. I struggle with the same sin. I struggle with the same stuff. You know what it comes down to? Intimacy with the Lord. As we said on Sunday, it's not praying for the symptom. It's praying for the heart of the matter, the thing behind what produces that behavior. Somebody who struggles with alcohol, the greatest prayer for them is not deliver them from alcohol, but may they come to know Christ. Because if they come to know Christ, God will will deliver them from alcohol. Amen? Whether it's drugs, alcohol, sex, finances, whatever your struggle may be, it's getting right with God that is the ultimate thing that needs to happen. Seek first the kingdom of God. And so what he's saying here is, look, ever since you guys rejected me, ever since you walked away because of the giants in the land, you've not been walking in my promises anymore. You've not been walking in covenant with me. So before you go and fight the enemy, you're going to have to cut your flesh. And you know what? We need to put our flesh to death. So the Bible tells us to cut the flesh, to die to our flesh daily. As they entered into the land where they would be blessed They would be surrounded by temptation, by idolatry, by pagan, immoral, religious practices. The temptation would be greater than any place they had been, and they needed to be marked to remember who they were and the covenant that God had made with them. Now understand this. The physical surgery was meant to only be a symbol of a spiritual operation of the heart. In Deuteronomy 10 it says, Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. So it's really a picture of what should be happening in your heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. And the outward portion was for the man to remember the covenant, but it was really what God had done in his heart. Note this too. Jordan is a picture of being filled with the Spirit. Notice that when they are filled with the Spirit, that they're cutting or putting the flesh to death. And that's God's heart and desire for us. There's that battle that goes on every day between the Spirit and the flesh. Which one wins the battle? the one you feed the most. And we must die daily to our flesh. As they crossed over where their parents had failed, they were to mark the occasion by marking their bodies and reestablishing their covenant with God. Now look at verse 3. This is an obedient man. So he tells them, make knives. So look at verse 3. So Joshua had a discussion with God about what he should do. So Joshua debated. Joshua took a vote among the 700,000 men in the troop to find out whether or not they thought circumcision was a good idea. We know how that vote would have went. 698,998 to 2 or something like that. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of foreskins. Now that's pleasant. Joshua didn't question God, he obeyed him. And with the estimated number of 2 to 3 million Jews, it's estimated there are about 700,000 men. That would have been a fun chore. Get some rocks out and circumcise 700,000 guys. Now this is radical obedience. Amen? This is radical obedience. Now wait a minute. We're already on the other side. We're already here. We already crossed over. God's on our side. Why we got to do this? You know what? Again, God's ways are not always our ways. We need to trust God, what He says, even when we don't understand. That's faith. Amen? Lord, I don't fully grasp it, but you're God. I trust you. You know what? Sometimes this comes out. Maybe, maybe you're here tonight and you're in a marriage where your husband doesn't know the Lord and he wants to do something you don't understand. Go. Do it. Well, wait a minute. But do it. Why? Because as you submit to him, God will be glorified. Amen? 
Maybe there's something going on at work. Maybe there's something going on with your kids. You don't understand. Maybe there's something that God's moving on your heart and it doesn't make any sense to you. Trust the Lord. Trust His Word. Be obedient and let God take care of it. Amen? Trust the Lord. Not only because of the obvious pain that would come was this radical obedience, but it it left them vulnerable to an attack by their enemy. You know what, though? They obeyed when it made no sense physically. It's called the hill of foreskins because there was so much blood heaped upon flesh that, man, it was just a a gnarly sight. Now it says, look at verse 4 through 6. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who had come out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness to all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed. Because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord swore he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to the fathers that he would give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Joshua is reminding those who are about to be circumcised why it was necessary. The previous generation blew it and we're not going to. Can I say something to you? Don't blame your disobedience on your parents. I hear that so often. Well, my mom and dad, the way I grew up, I really didn't have any choice. I was going to turn out this way. I'm from a dysfunctional family. Let me tell you something. Every family ever was dysfunctional. Adam and Eve, first family, Cain killed Abel. How dysfunctional is that? Got two kids, one killed the other one. How's that working out for you, right? Why don't we just call it sinful families? How many came from a sinful family? Raise your hand. All right, praise God. So here's the point. We want to blame it on the previous generation. We want to blame it. He's saying, look, they blew it. We don't have to. They didn't honor God's covenant. They were not obedient to it, but we're going to be. They did not keep their covenant with God. We're going to keep our covenant with God. We're not going to stand before Almighty God in Judgment Day with our parents standing next to us. Amen? Or our husband or our wife or our kids or our boss or whoever else we want to blame. It's going to be us. Amen? And we need to be able to stand with Him. They gave the law to the next generation, and now the first action was to respond in obedience to reestablish His covenant. The previous generation had rebelled, they had broken the covenant, they disobeyed God. The new word was given to the next generation, and that was their opportunity to stand with the Lord. The previous generation of your family may have not walked with God, it's still your chance to walk with the Lord. And so your opportunity to make that covenant with Almighty God to enter in. Praise God, we don't have to be marked in the same way. Amen? God's good. Verse 7 and 8. Then Joshua circumcised their sons, who he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised, because they had not been circumcised on the way. So it was, when they had finished circumcising all the people, that they stayed in their places in the camp till they had healed. I guess so. Now... This is radical obedience, because think about this. you got 700,000 guys in your army. You're already outnumbered by the army you're going to face, and they have a huge fortress, and they have better weapons than you do. Now, you have God, and they don't, and that's all that matters. But from a physical perspective, you would think, all right, they're afraid right now. Let's get them while they're afraid. Let's go after them. No, we're going to circumcise all of you, and then you're going to lay here vulnerable, unable to protect yourselves until you heal. Now, if you don't think that's the case... You guys remember the story in, Deuter- in uh, Genesis 32? 
There was a girl by the name of Dinah. Her father was, anybody remember? Jacob, very good. Now, Jacob had 12 sons. We know that, the 12 tribes of Israel. But he also had a daughter named Dinah. And we know that there was a man who took advantage of Dinah and raped her. Now, her brothers, Simeon and Levi, weren't too happy about that. So they went down, and when they approached this prince who had done this, the king came out and said, we want Dinah to marry our son. Okay, our son's raped your daughter. We want to marry her now. Make it okay. And so Simeon and Levi said, well, we'll make you a deal. If all of your men are circumcised, so you have the mark of the Jews, so we're not intermarrying with those who are not marked like us, then we will be we will join in marriage with you and you can give your daughters our sons and our sons your daughters and we can be one people. And so the people said, okay, we'll do that. So all the, men circum- they were, all the men were circumcised and as they were laying on the ground in pain, Simeon and Levi showed up and killed them all. Deuteronomy chapter 32, it's in the Bible. So these guys are all laying there and two guys went in with swords. And these guys are just laying there, oh, I can't move, right? I'm in pain. So we know circumcision equals vulnerability. So these guys are sitting there. Instead of attacking, they're laying there uh, for days. And the, the enemy could come in at any moment. Is that radical obedience or what? They obeyed God. Does that make any sense? Well, if we wanted to do this, Lord, why didn't we do it on the other side of the Jordan before we came over here? Why are we encamped one mile from the enemy and then we do it? Why can we do it? Back away, up in a hill somewhere. Well, nobody will see us. And too often, that's how we want to make our stand for God. Up in a hill somewhere, hidden from everybody. Lord, I will profess you in my shower. I'll sing praise songs to you in my car when no one else is around, but in front of people, don't ask me to say anything, right? But you know what? The Lord wants us to trust Him in the face of of adversity. He wants us to trust Him in the midst of our consequences and heavy-duty circumstances. That's when real faith comes in. It's not faith to trust God to pay your bills when you have $10 million in the bank. I know several you can probably relate to that, right? No, we, we don't, you know, that's not faith, but it's faith to trust God's Word that He will provide for us when we have $10 in the bank. We say, you know what, Lord? You're faithful. I trust you. That's faith. And this is radical obedience that God said, here's what you're going to do first. I want you to be marked first. I want you to make your covenant with me first. I want you to be prepared before you go out into that battle. And here's how you're going to do it. So not only did Israel cross over at the most militarily undesirable place, right in front of Jericho, right in front of their strongest military outposts in all of Canaan, they also incapacitated their army for several days. You know what? Then they could only trust in one person, right? They had to trust in God then, right? Sometimes, I shouldn't say sometimes, all the time, that's the best place to be. You don't realize that God is all you need until God is all you have. And I tell you, I'm, you know, we're getting ready to go back to India on Sunday after church. Pastor Bill and I will be leaving to India. Pray for us. We're going to have a chance to go into two Bible colleges over there and teach a bunch of these guys who go out two by two and plant churches. And it's a blessing. And these guys know that when they go out, that the likelihood of them being beaten, persecuted, and potentially even killed, of being beaten and persecuted is 100%. I asked one of the instructors last time, what percentage of these guys will be beaten for the faith? He goes, what do you mean, what percentage? I said, what per-? He said, all of them. If they're sharing their faith, they're going to be beaten. Now, guess what? I've never seen people worship with greater joy than the guys in the Bible college in India who have nothing. 
But they have everything because they have Jesus. Amen? And here's the point. He's saying, look, they got to a place where they couldn't protect themselves. They got to a place where they were totally vulnerable. And that's right where God wanted them to be. He said, you know what? I want you to get to the place where you're totally dependent on me. Then you'll be ready to go out and fight the battle. Get to the place where you're desperate for God. You're seeking Him alone. They did so again as an act of radical obedience. Not just obeying when it makes sense, but coming to a place where they trusted God and His direction instead of their own finite wisdom. Again, how do I define radical obedience? Walking in obedience regardless of our circumstances and regardless of the physical consequences. Valuing spiritual obedience over physical comfort. And again, God had already shown him he was faithful. Step in the water, it parted. You're hungry? Here comes food out of the sky. You want water? Coming out of a rock. Right? God had already proved he was faithful over and over and over again. And now he's saying, make a covenant with me first and then go fight the battle. Don't rush out. Wait upon the Lord. May God help us to step out that we may continue to grow in our faith. It says there in verse 9, Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore the name of this place shall be called Gilgal to this day. Now Gilgal means rolling. And what is the reproach of Egypt? It was the shame of their degrading bondage and slavery. And here's what he's saying to them. God has called Israel to a place where they saw themselves no longer as being slaves to Egypt, but slaves to the Lord. They'd gone to a place where they were no longer under bondage to Egypt. They'd left Egypt behind. they left the idolatry behind. And now they were serving the true and living God. And he says, I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. By faith, they, they could see themselves as children of God. Now, this is the same work that God does in each one of us, wants to do. To take away the shame of our previous sin and rebellion, and that we would see ourselves in Jesus Christ. How does that happen? By putting radical trace, trust and obedience in God. By taking action, by responding in obedience to the Lord. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You want your faith to grow, spend time in God's Word. But at some point, as we're going to see here in the next few verses... We need to do more than just believe what the Word says. We need to start living it out. It's not enough to know it here. We need to know it here and live it out here. Amen? Again, works do not save us, but when we're saved, we will produce good works. And so we see here this radical faith, this radical obedience, this transformation from idol worship and rejecting God and, and the previous generation fleeing. From the giants in the land to the next generation saying, we trust God. Step in the water? Yes, Lord, we'll do it. Fight the enemy? Yes, Lord, we'll fight him. Stop here and be circumcised and left vulnerable one mile from the enemy's biggest fortress? Lord, we trust you. Lord, we're going to obey you. You know what? That's the kind of person God can use. Amen? Someone who says, Lord, I trust you no matter what. So fruits of a spirit-filled walk. The first thing is radical obedience. Valuing spiritual obedience over physical comfort. Now, second... Remembering God's goodness. You know what? Sometimes I think the reason we struggle so much is that we forget all that God's done for us. Can I encourage you, as we said on Sunday, when you start your prayer, start with praise. Praise God for who He is. And it's amazing how the stuff that you need, you know, you intercede for, all of a sudden isn't that big a deal. When you understand the greatness of your God, then the greatness of your problems deteriorates. 
In the eyes of the Lord, anything that we face is nothing compared to Almighty God. So let's begin by looking at remembering God's goodness. First, God's deliverance. Look, it says there in verse 10. Now the children of Israel camped at Gilgal. Now, from now on, this is going to be their base camp. All right? As we go through Joshua and they go out into Canaan and they fight battles, often they're going to come back to Gilgal. Gilgal is going to be a place of remembrance. Remember last week? That's where they built the altar to remind them that they had come out. God had helped them cross over the Jordan. They carried those big stones, and every time they came back, they would see and remember God's deliverance. So Gilgal was that place, that place of rolling away of the reproach, that place that would be like a base camp to them. It says there, and they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. Now Passover, he's reminding them of what God has done for them. Reminding them. Why? Because we need to be reminded. Passover, 14th day of the month. Do you think it was by chance that they were in camp there getting ready to fight the battle and it was time for Passover? Of course not. God said, okay, be circumcised. They heal up from circumcision. And as soon as they heal up, it's Passover. So again, be still, wait upon me, remember what I've done for you. Look back to your deliverance out of Egypt. Again, if you're new here, real quickly, Passover, they took the blood of a lamb. The lamb they inspected for four days. They killed the lamb, they took the blood, and they put it on the doorpost and the mantle, and they, so that when you, it made the shape of a cross. It wasn't good enough to kill the lamb, it wasn't good enough to have the blood, you had to apply the blood. It's not good enough to know that Jesus died on the cross, you must apply it to your life. You must come to him repentant and broken and seeking salvation. It's not a good, oh, I believe in God. That's great. That's not enough. Many people will miss heaven by 18 inches. There's between your head and your heart. It's not enough to just know there's a God. He needs to be your Lord and your Savior. Amen? And so we see here that it's important that that blood be applied. And so he's reminding them that they would look back and remember their deliverance out of bondage. For you and I today, we don't have Passover anymore but we have something close to it. Communion. The Lord's Supper. We'll be taking it this Sunday. Every time we take it, we are to look back and remember the cross of Christ. May we never let the cross of Christ grow common. May it never just be a piece of jewelry. Amen? Hanging around our neck. I'm all for you having a cross hanging around your neck. I think it's great. But may it be something that every time we look in the mirror reminds us of what Christ did for us. Amen? And we look at it and say, thank you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. Let me remember what you've done for me. Looking back to that place to reestablish that covenant with the Lord. Note again that they observe Passover. This is only the second time. Because not only did they not circumcise their kids in the wilderness, but they didn't observe Passover either. They were in the wilderness doing I don't know what. Uh, Wandering around, right? I mean, that's all they did. They got nothing accomplished. They were spiritually dry in the wilderness. Can I encourage you, if you're spiritually dry, learn that you need to reconnect that intimacy with God, remake that covenant with you and the Lord. We're in the new covenant, right? Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, right? But we need to come back to that place. Lord, forgive me, reestablish that. But also, I think it's important that you get back to the place where you remember the cross. You get back to the place where you... Again, are taking communion, examine your own heart before Almighty God. Communion does not save you, but it's a remembrance of your salvation. Amen? 
And it should be something that we do regularly, something that we do looking back and remembering all that God has done for us. Now, some churches have made it such a religious thing that it's become mundane and people take it and think it doesn't save you, but it points you to the Savior. Amen? And so the point is here to look back. Now, it's interesting, in the wilderness, no circumcision, no Passover. Forgot God's promises, forgot God's deliverance. Walking in disobedience. In the land of promise, where they were spirit-filled, they were looking back to the cross, remembering their deliverance out of bondage, and they were remembering God's faithfulness to His promises. You know what? We need that, amen? We need a reminder, a constant reminder. Why do we need to be in God's Word every day? Because... It is a constant reminder of the greatness of our God, of His love, His grace, His mercy. It's how, it's, it's how God speaks to us. If you go out there on your own, you can end up wandering around the wilderness, having no impact on eternity. And His point is, you know, get your eyes on me. So they kept Passover, and they ate the produce of the land on the day after Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain, on the very same day. This is interesting, that what have they been eating for 40 years? Manna. No more manna. No more manna cotti. No more, you know, banana sandwiches or whatever, right? No more manna. Now they were eating the fruit of the land. So even though they were surrounded by their enemies, they were eating the fruit of the land. This brought a verse to mind. That was prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Psalm 23, verse 5. God blessed them. The enemy's a mile away and they're celebrating. Passover, and they're enjoying the fruit of the land. I think it's interesting that they go from manna to the fruit of the land when they leave the wilderness and go into the Spirit-filled life. Because the Spirit-filled life should produce fruit. Amen? It's more than just being fed. You know, being fed is a good thing. Manna falling from the sky, good thing. But you know what? As I said earlier, if we just keep waiting for the manna and we don't go out and bear fruit, it's not accomplishing the work that God set it out to do. We need to be fed so that we can go out and do the work. Pastor's calling is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Not so you can be the biggest, fattest, best fed sheep in town. Every time you go to church, right? Right? Bunch of big fat sheep waddling out the door. God wants us to take what we've been fed and go out and minister to the world. Again, unleavened bread and parched grain that very same day. You know they were stoked. No more manna. Now look what it says there. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land, and the children of Israel no longer ate manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. Notice that God still provided, but He provided in a different way. And we need to learn to trust that God might do that in your life too. He's always the provider. Let me just make it real clear to you. If your bills aren't getting paid, it's not God's fault. And people say that to me. Well, God's not providing. What, what, back up. Maybe you're spending too much. Oh, no, it couldn't be that. <laughs> Maybe, you know, you need to change your bills. Maybe, you know, here's an idea. Get a job, right? I'm, I'm amazed. God's not providing. What, 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 where are you working? I haven't worked for four years. I'm just kind of... Wait a minute. And I love this, this whole, well, you know, God, you know, the Lord was homeless, and He expect. Ah... Uh, he was not lazy. Amen? Now, I have a burn to see everybody minister to and loved on, and I want to reach out to them as much as anybody, but a man who does not work shall not eat, and when we sit back and blame God that He's not providing for us, it's not God's fault. 
And God may provide in a different way. He used to drop manna from the sky. Now they're actually going to have to go out and do something to get their food. Maybe he'll drop manna for a while, but maybe after a while he'll say, okay, guys, start tilling the soil. Start planting. Start harvesting. The Bible tells us a man will provide for his family by the sweat of his brow. Amen? And so we see here that God's provision changed, but God continued to provide, and the manna was no longer. So that meant that this 40-year miracle finally came to an end. Remember that when manna first came, they were upset, and they wanted leeks and onions back in Egypt? Remember that? God's dropping bread out of the sky, and they're going, well, I want to go back to Egypt and have onions and leeks. Anybody ever had leeks before? You can have them. I'm sorry. God bless you. Have yourself some leeks, man. I'm thinking manna's got to be better, because God gave it to us. Amen? I have no idea what manna was, but I'm just, you know, manna... I bet it was good. And you know what? It was whatever it was made up of was perfect to sustain them for 40 years, right? It was the perfect food. And they complained and said, want to go back to Egypt. And again, the selective memory of man, they want to go back to the place of beatings and slavery so they can have some leeks and onions instead of being with Almighty God and have a manna drawing, falling out of the sky. Now in the land flowing with milk and honey, God's going to provide for them from the fruit of the land. And again, that they were called to be faithful and participate in it. Now in the wilderness, that bread of life, and now in Canaan, the Spirit-filled life, they were being fruitful. And as Christians, as we walk in the Spirit-filled life, the fruit of walking in the Spirit should be that we produce fruit in our walk. There should be something coming out of our daily walk. Lives should be impacted. People should be touched. So fruits of a Spirit-filled walk, a radical obedience, obeying God even when it doesn't make sense, remembering God's goodness, His deliverance, Passover, the cross, His provision, manna, and fruit of the land. And now lastly, in these final three verses, reaffirming God's presence, intimacy with the Lord. And I love this. If you've been checking out on me for a minute, get back, get back with me because these last three verses are awesome. Look what it says here. And it came to pass when Joshua was, was by Jericho. So probably, being the commander, he's going out to check out the enemy. That's what he's supposed to do, right? He's the military leader. He goes out and he's checking out Jericho. Okay, where should we, how are we going to come after these guys? Great fortress. And as he goes out there, he lifted up his eyes. You know what I found interesting? In the Bible, every time that I saw it, virtually every time I should say, Every time, virtually every time I saw he lifted up his eyes, something major happened right after that. It says, David lifted up his eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord. Jesus lifted up his eyes and he began the Sermon on the Mount. The rich man lifted up his eyes while he was burning in hell and saw Lazarus on the other side. Jesus lifted up his eyes and he began feeding the multitudes. Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven when he was in the garden and he was praying. Throughout the Bible, when you see that, he lifted up his eyes. Hold on. Get ready. Okay? And this is not an exception. Because look what it says there. He lifted up his eyes, and behold, a man stood opposite of him. Now, a man. And look what it says about this man who stood opposite of him. With his sword sword drawn in his hand. So a man with a sword in his hand. Now, this is not an angel. The Bible says it's a man. Right? Man, not angel, not spirit, not being man, with a sword in his hand. So what does Joshua do? Being the good commander that he is, being a faithful man of God, being a man with radical obedience, being a man of great faith, what does he do? Because he doesn't know where this guy's from, and look what he says. 
And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Faithful leader. As a faithful leader, a shepherd over God's people, he boldly comes to see if the man is a friend or a foe. Are you on our side? Now look at this answer. This doesn't even make sense. Are you for us or adversaries? He said no. Now this isn't even a yes or no question. Are you on their side or our side? No. Again, it seems like he's being elusive. But in a sense, the man refuses to answer Joshua's question because it wasn't the right question. Here's the question. Not whether or not the Lord, and that's who this person is, whether or not the Lord was on Joshua's side, but whether or not Joshua was on the Lord's side. It wasn't whether or not, are you on our side or their side? He said, no. That's not even the question. The question is, are you on my side? Because look what he says. He says, no, but as a commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. The commander of the army of the Lord, a man. Who in the world could this be? Well, we're going to get another clue here. Let's keep reading on because we're going to find out exactly who this man is because Joshua was the greatest military leader on earth at that point, right? Appointed by God. But this man says, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, wait a minute. Isn't that Joshua? No. There's someone greater than Joshua. There's a commander of the army of the Lord. And look what, this will give us a clue who it is. And Joshua fell on his face to earth and worshipped him and said, What does my, what? Lord say to his servant. Who is this? This is Jesus. But wait a minute, Pastor Dave, this is hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth. If you didn't know it before you got here, Jesus always has been and always will be. He's before creation, he's over all creation, he created all things, he is God, and here we see him yet again in the Old Testament, and don't you love it? And look what it says here, it says he worshipped him. Joshua's response to Jesus was he fell on his face. That's a good way to respond to Jesus, amen? He didn't say, now what, what was up with the circumcision thing anyway? What was that all about? Was that necessary? You know? How come Moses didn't lead him in? I was, I was good being number two, you know? He didn't start asking questions. He was flat on his face. And that's exactly where we ought to be when it comes to the Lord. He worships him and he exhibits complete submission saying, What does my Lord say to his servant? Here's a spirit-filled life right here. Here's a spirit-filled walk. Here's radical obedience in action. There's no doubt this is Jesus. We'll see when we get to chapter 2. Chapter 6, it says in verse 2, And the Lord said to Joshua, just to make it really clear to you, this is Jesus. Man, I love it. Don't you love the Old Testament? It just flat out rocks. God's on every page. The whole Bible's his story, right? History is his story, and everything in this book points us to Jesus. Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. Now, if that, this is an angel, would an angel be doing this? First of all, if you worship an angel, what does an angel tell you? Get up! We don't worship any man, we don't worship any angels, we don't worship any saints, amen? We worship Jesus Christ alone. He alone is worthy to be worshipped, to be praised, and to be honored. You know, we might admire godly people that have gone before us, and it's okay to admire them, but don't worship them, don't elevate them, only the Lord. And so he says here, take off 
your sandal, for the place where you stand is holy. When's the last time we saw someone taking off their sandal because the place where they stood was holy? Moses at the burning bush talking to whom? God. So guess what? Jesus Christ is God. Amen? He says right there, I am that I am. Later Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. The same I am that came from the burning bush. And the same thing in the presence of God, we need to have the Father in the presence of Jesus. Same thing. Holy ground. Amen? God's there. And so, look at this, and Joshua did so. That's a good thing. Amen? And Joshua said, yes, Lord. There it is. Okay, Lord. Take all my sandals. No problem. Follow my faith. I can do that. Lord, whatever you want. You know what? We need some more of that. Whatever you want, Lord. Amen? I'll go wherever you want. I'll do whatever you want. Not on my terms or my conditions, but not my will, but thy will be done. And I love this because Joshua's total submission shows us that he knows who's really in charge. And we need to know who's really in charge. So why did Jesus come to Israel at this strategic time as we close? He came to instruct Joshua in a plan to capture Jericho. Joshua's going to carry out, in the following chapter, one of the most improbable military designs ever. Only God could come up with this. Amen? And most of all, he had come to conquer Israel because before Israel could conquer anything else in the land of promise, they had to be conquered by God. Before they could be used mightily by God, they had to be totally submitted to God. Guys, we want to be used mightily by God. It starts in our own intimate relationship with the Lord. It begins with my heart, my relationship, and then the fruit that comes from it. It's not, again, me trying to do good things so I'll be pleasing in God's sight. It's learning to fall in love with Him, submit to Him totally, know who's really in charge, give Him your life completely, and then get out of the way and watch what God's going to do. This is the missing element of the life of victory for many Christians, learning to completely submit to God. They've not been conquered by God. So in closing, the fruit of a spirit-filled walk, radical obedience, obeying God even when it doesn't make sense. Two, remembering God's goodness, looking back to the cross. In their case, looking back to, to Passover, thanking God for His provision. Lord, all that I have came from you. Thank you, Lord. And then lastly, reaffirming God's presence in my life, that intimate fellowship having a heart of surrender and worship and reverence for Almighty God, walking in holiness and intimate fellowship with Him. You know what, guys? Can I tell you something? It doesn't matter what else is going on in your life. If you're walking in intimate fellowship with God, there's nothing better than that. There's a peace that surpasses all understanding that comes there. It doesn't matter if you've been diagnosed with an illness. It doesn't matter what's going on anywhere else in life if you're walking in the center of His will. May we know that joy. May we know that peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you for your love and your grace and your infinite mercy. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name you'd help each of us, Lord, to respond to you with radical obedience. Lord, to say, not my will, but thy will be done. May we learn from the example of Joshua and the children of Israel that when you gave them a command that didn't make sense, they didn't question you, but said, yes, Lord. Lord, when you give us a command that doesn't make sense, may we just say, yes, Lord. Lord, may we be sensitive to the leading of your spirit. May we step out in faith. May we not be worried about our reputation, but yours. Lord, I pray also that we would have deeper intimacy with you, deeper than we've ever had before, as we continue on in the sanctification process, being set apart, being conformed more to your image. May we walk in the fullness of your spirit. 
May we know your heart completely. May we walk so close to you we can hear you whisper. Lord, we love you so much. What a privilege, Lord, to serve the true and living God. Where every other religion takes, you only want to give. You want to give us eternal life. You want to give us joy and peace even now. You want to fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, we love you so much. We praise and worship your name. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.